Hello everyone and welcome to the Unique Podcast. My name is Nikki. I'm one of two podcast hosts that you're going to be hearing from today. The other one being Alexia who will be doing the second segment of this podcast so you'll be hearing from them shortly. And today's topic is going to be focusing around that of intersectionality. So big topic, somewhat broad, but gonna try to narrow it in a little bit and I'm initially just gonna use this introduction to sort of introduce myself as well as the things that I'm gonna be talking about. So for the first portion of my segment I'll be discussing the origins of the framework of intersectionality and what intersectionality is. I think it's gonna be important to highlight this concept um, and who it was coined by. So we will get into sort of the origins and history. In the part after that, I'm going to look at some cases in which intersectionality has either been co-opted or misinterpreted. Intersectionality definitely has a very long history, specifically in certain white feminist circles of being co-opted and misinterpreted, um, and often used to evade accountability, which once you understand the meaning of intersectionality and its origins, um, you'll understand why the co-optation and misinterpretation is so frustrating and also nefarious. Um, after that, I'm going to be speaking on some critiques of the framework of intersectionality, primarily focusing on Jennifer C. Nash, who we read in our um, course called Black Feminist Theory. And then I'm going to close my podcast segment with a discussion a little bit of the Combahee River Collective, as well as kind of some of my own identities and some of the intersections under which I fall. Because I think it's important to name, because, um, you know, realistically we're not living in this vacuum where our lived experiences don't influence uh, how we understand the world and how we move about it. And so I think that kind of closing it with Combahee River, as well as some of my own personal experiences, um, will be a nice way to sort of segue into Alexia's portion. So with that, I'm going to get into the history and origins right now. Okay, so now we're going to be focusing on the history and origins of the term and the framework intersectionality. And to do this, we're going to be focusing on a piece called Mapping the Margins, Intersectionality, Identity, Politics, and Violence Against Women of Color by Kimberly Crenshaw. So the term intersectionality was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw in the late 80s and early 90s. I believe this specific piece was written in 1993. Kimberly Crenshaw is an American lawyer and a critical race theorist. And her work is widely cited in feminist theory and theory broadly. Um, and you can really see the impact of her work in just the general rhetoric around this term intersectionality in really almost every activist space that exists today, really. So Crenshaw defines intersectionality as a way to view how various forms of oppression some examples being race, gender, sexuality, class, etc. Compound, build, and create unique circumstances of oppression. I do want to note that intersectionality is certainly not an entirely new concept. Many black feminist theorists um, before Crenshaw have theorized within this framework, but Crenshaw certainly put the most clear name and structure on it. Given her status as a lawyer, a lot of her work drew attention to how intersectionality affects legal issues. Um, in this work, she talks extensively about how certain frameworks of sexual violence affect black women specifically, and goes into great detail about specific cases as well as theories that frame black women as well as women of color generally in a certain light, which doesn't consider how the intersection of race and gender are central to many of their experiences. Crenshaw breaks intersectionality down into three parts, which are structural intersectionality, political intersectionality, and representational intersectionality. And she defines these parts as follows. 
So with structural intersectionality, she states that these are the ways in which location of women of color at the intersection of race and gender makes their actual experience of domestic violence, rape, and remedial reform qualitatively different than that of white women. And then with political intersectionality, this is where she analyzes how both feminist and anti-racist politics have paradoxically often helped to marginalize the issue of violence against women of color. And then with representational intersectionality by this, she means the cultural construction of women of color. And to note, those were her words from um, this piece that we will be discussing from her. So this is sort of the basics of intersectionality, and it's important to know this in order to be able to understand and apply this framework generally. It's also important to have this basic understanding of intersectionality in order to spot when it may be misinterpreted. And we're now going to move on to these misinterpretations and look at some sort of um, pop culture cases of how uh, co-optation and misinterpretation can sort of present itself with the rhetoric of intersectionality. So one of the primary misinterpretations of intersectionality tends to be the way in which people flatten its meaning. And what I mean by this is often, and specifically in white feminist circles, this rhetoric of, oh, well, you know, we can all relate to this because we're all women, really flattens the wide variety of experiences of womanhood. And, you know, while it's true that there are many universal experiences of womanhood, this understanding of womanhood erases how things like class and race and gender and ability and all other intersections can often compound, creating more significant systemic marginalization for many. So, for example, a white, wealthy, able-bodied person who isn't queer but happens to be a woman, you know, her experience with womanhood is going to be vastly different than someone who, say, is you know, black, disabled, non-cisgendered, and poor. So centering a women's movement needs to get really specific because if a movement is only helping the formerly described woman, it really will do almost nothing for the material conditions of the latter. So one way we can see misinterpretation of the rhetoric and framework of intersectionality is in the co-optation of the Me Too movement. So, the Me Too movement was created by a black woman by the name of Tarana Burke in 2006 on MySpace, where she sort of created this movement to bring awareness to experiences of sexual assault that are shared amongst women of color and black women specifically. And over a decade later, Alyssa Milano, who is a very wealthy actress, if you did not know, uh, sent out a tweet, and this was in the fall of 2017, by the way. So Alyssa Milano sent out a tweet that said, if all the women who have been sexually harassed or assaulted wrote Me Too as a status, we might give people a sense of the magnitude of the problem. And so... After that, I mean, anyone that was on social media at this time, I'm sure you all remember scrolling through Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for all of the days and really weeks to come after Alyssa initially tweeted this. I'm sure you all remember scrolling and just seeing story after story and so many women coming out and saying me too. And, you know, initially it was this really powerful thing. Um, but come a few months later, people started to point out, you know, hey, let's give credit where it's due for this movement, because it was started by a black woman, by a black woman more specifically for black women and women of color generally. And so this movement sort of got co-opted by this sort of broader women's movement, and 
you know, in positing the Me Too movement as a broad women's movement, void of the nuances of the varying experiences of womanhood, it sort of flattened and silenced the experiences of the most marginalized. So, in co-opting and misinterpreting intersectionality by saying, well, this movement is about all women because we all fit under the intersection of womanhood, you have now essentially made it extremely difficult to discuss intracommunal issues and differences. And Kimberly Crenshaw frames this in a much more concise way than I, so I'm going to read a few passages from her work so that we can gain a better understanding of how this sort of all ties together. So in this first passage, Crenshaw states, the problem with identity politics is not that it fails to transcend difference, as some critics charge, but rather the opposite, that it frequently conflates or ignores intergroup differences. In the context of violence against women, this elision of difference in identity politics is problematic, fundamentally because the violence that many women experience is often shaped by other dimensions of their identity, such as race and class. Moreover, ignoring differences within groups contributes to tension among groups, another problem of identity politics that bears on efforts to politicize violence against women. Feminist efforts to politicize experiences of women and anti-racist efforts to politicize experiences of people of color have frequently proceeded as though the issues and experiences they each detail occur on mutually exclusive terrains. Although racism and sexism readily intersect in the lives of real people, they seldom do in feminist and anti-racist practices. And so, when the practices expound identity as a woman or a person of color as an either-or position, they relegate the identity of women of color to a location that resists telling. And then, one more passage that is sort of along similar lines. Crenshaw states, among the most troubling political consequences of the failure of anti-racist and feminist discourses to address the intersections of race and gender is the fact that, to the extent that they can forward the interest of people of color and women respectively, one analysis often implicitly denies the validity of the other. The failure of feminism to interrogate race means that the resistance strategies of feminism will often replicate and reinforce the subordination of people of color, and the failure of anti-racism to interrogate patriarchy means that anti-racism will frequently reproduce the subordination of women. These mutual elisions present a particularly difficult political dilemma for women of color. Adopting either analysis constitutes a denial of a fundamental dimension of our subordination and precludes the development of a political discourse that more fully empowers women of color. So, we see in these quotes how she discusses how creating broad movements based on singular forms of oppression can sort of erase the specific experiences of people with intersecting identities. And this isn't to say that there aren't certain things all women can relate to in some way or another. It's just to say that, you know, not all women are specific or people of a specific margin share universal experiences. And... Acting as though they do can very easily lead to erasure and silencing. One more troubling thing we saw in the Me Too movement was this notion that sexual assault is happening even to these wealthy and often white Hollywood actresses. This is a really problematic line of thinking as it alludes to sexual assault being an occurrence primarily amongst minority groups. Crenshaw critiques this line of thought in this passage where she states strategies for increasing awareness of domestic violence within the white community tend to be by citing the commonly shared assumption that battering is a minority problem the strategy then focuses on demolishing the straw man stressing that spousal abuse also occurs in the white community countless first person stories begin with a statement like i was not supposed to be a battered wife that battering occurs in families of all races and all classes seems to be an ever-present theme of anti-abuse campaigns. First-person anecdotes and studies, for example, consistently assert that battering cuts across racial, ethnic, economic, educational, and religious lines. 
Such disclaimers seem relevant only in the presence of an initial, widely held belief that domestic violence occurs primarily in minority or poor families. So, here we see how she states this conflation of violence with minority groups is increasingly harmful and nefarious. So, these are just a few examples of the harms of misinterpretation and co-optation, and now I'm going to focus a little bit on some of the critique of this framework. So, now we're going to move into some of the critique of Kimberly Crenshaw's intersectional theory, and... Primarily, we're going to look at critique coming from Jennifer C. Nash in her piece titled Rethinking Intersectionality. So, Jennifer C. Nash is a black feminist scholar and professor at Duke University. And I actually had the pleasure of attending a talk given by Jennifer C. Nash a couple of years ago during a black feminist speaker series. And something I remembered about her was how she seemed to approach critique in a very very intricate and methodical way and you know often when we hear the word critique we automatically think of its pejorative connotations when in reality critique simply helps us navigate and you know move through and unpack certain things like blind spots or you know unanswered questions and ultimately it serves as a tool to allow us to really think critically and provoke and ask questions in order to make our theoretical and subsequently praxic tools as sharp as possible. So this is all just to say that critique is not the complete and entire dismissal of any broad theory, in this case being Crenshaw's intersectional theory. Critique is more so just a way to improve the theory itself, as well as provoke some questions about how we can expand it and use it to its full potential. So... Jennifer C. Nash's article and critique centers on four unresolved questions with with intersectional theory, and she states that these are the lack of a clearly defined intersectional methodology, the use of black women as prototypical intersectional subjects, the ambiguity inherent to the definition of intersectionality, and the coherence between intersectionality and lived experiences of multiple identities. So, I'm sort of going to break her critique down into uh, these four sections that she sort of breaks them down into. So, her first one being uh, the lack of a clearly defined intersectional methodology. And essentially what she's meaning by this is there's sort of a, a murkiness, a lack of clarity in how to really inquire about intersectionality, how to study it, how to measure it, is there really even a way to do that? Um, And some of the questions that she posits are, how does one pay attention to the points of intersection? How many intersections are there? Is the idea of an intersection the right analogy? And so she kind of goes on to describe some ways in which people have attempted to Um, bring a little bit more clear methodology to intersectional theory. So essentially what Nash is trying to gather is the fact that given the broadness of intersectionality and all of its nuances and complexity, it can be really hard to uh, measure and develop a specific methodology for. And so in her next point... Um, the use of black women as prototypical intersectional subjects. I'm actually going to read a passage from Nash. And this passage goes, Intersectionality's reliance on black women as the basis for its claims to complex subjectivity renders black women prototypical intersectional subjects whose experiences of marginality are imagined to provide a theoretical value added. That is... Black women enable scholars to, quote-unquote, ask the other question, to expose the specters of racism and sexism, which leave their traces, even in progressive analyses. Because black women are theoretically erased, centering black women's experiences makes feminism and anti-racist work systemic and attention to black women apparent, and demonstrates the necessity of deepening feminist and anti-racist conventions. To that end, black women's experiences are used as a theoretical wedge designed to demonstrate the shortcomings of conventional feminist and anti-racist work. 
The problems with a theoretical reliance on black women's experiences are twofold. First, while seeking to underscore problems of exclusion within feminist and anti-racist theory, black women are treated as a unitary and monolithic entity. Second, in defining intersectionality as an analytic tool that denotes the various ways in which race and gender interact to shape the multiple dimensions of black women's experiences, intersectionality recycles black feminism without demonstrating what new tools it brings to black feminism to help it fashion a more complex theory of identity. If, in fact, intersectionality purports to theorize identity in a way that departs from or adds to black feminism, a more explicit engagement with the nature and distinctiveness of its theoretical contribution would be useful. And so, in that passage, you know, towards the end, you can really see how Nash's goal, again, is not to completely dismantle and dismiss the theory of intersectionality. Um, it, more so, it is just to build upon this theory, to ask more questions that add a bit more nuance um, to the theory and help it become a bit more useful and sort of wade through some of the vagueness. Which sort of leads into her next point, um, which is the ambiguity inherent to the definition of intersectionality. And she discusses this sort of within her next pillar as well. So I'm going to read another passage. Um, and her next pillar being the coherence between intersectionality and lived experiences and multiple identities. And so, in one little shorter passage, she, she states, While some feminist scholars insist that intersectionality refers to all subject positions, which are all fundamentally constructed by the interplay of race, gender, sexuality, class, etc., the overwhelming majority of intersectional scholarship has centered on the particular positions of multiply marginalized subjects. This unresolved theoretical dispute makes it unclear whether intersectionality is a theory of marginalized subjectivity or a generalized theory of identity. So, in these last two little portions, Nash is attempting to figure out whether... Um, Nash. So this distinction between whether intersectionality, you know, broadly is describing general theories of identity or whether it is describing marginalized subjectivity is really important to understand the ways in which people deploy either of those things in which, you know, these identities um, or areas of subjectivity, how that shows up in power dynamics, in our everyday sociopolitical life, in work, in interpersonal relationships. And so I think that in attempting to distinguish um, between those two things, Nash's main goal here is really, again, to bolster intersectionality and figure out how this theory and this framework can be most useful and can be strengthened and nuanced and um, more complex. Because, again, you know, when a theoretical framework is a little bit more vague, it definitely has more opportunity to be misinterpreted, as we talked about earlier. And so... Narrowing this down and asking these sort of more difficult questions is essentially Nash's goal, and um, she does a great job of it in this article and really attempts to make sure everyone understands that she does have a lot of respect for this work and is simply trying to build on it and make it better. So for this last part, I'm going to get a little more personal and talk a little bit about some of my own little intersections, areas that um, I marginalize, and other areas in which I have a lot of power. Um, and I want to focus specifically on this idea of positionality. And so I'll get to that in a minute, but first I'll kind of introduce like my own intersections, and then we're going to talk very briefly about Combahee River Collective um, and some ideas that come from them. So, 
I identify as trans non-binary. Um, I'm a very visibly queer person. It's kind of one of the first things you're going to notice about me if you were to see me. <laughs> um, and I identify as a lesbian. So those are kind of areas in which I've experienced uh, certain facets of marginalization, but a lot of those can often be offset by two areas in which I do have immense power, and one of those areas is being white. Another area is growing up in a wealthy family. And so in my own case, being white and coming from an affluent background means that I am positionally advantaged over many, if not majority, of my fellow trans lesbians. And, you know, it's important to understand your own positionality for a few reasons, but I think one of the main ones being that it should inform a lot of your socio-political praxis, and, you know, praxis being the actions you take. So, in my case, I feel comfortable generally discussing the intersections of trans and lesbian communities because I share so many experiences with this community. However, given that I am white and grew up in a wealthier family, these two experiences provide me with an immense cushion. Um, and there's plenty of trans lesbians out there who simply have never had any cushion of that nature. Therefore, in my opinion, they're going to experience burdens more immensely and frequently than I do and should be the ones leading communal conversations or whose voices are most heard and centered and ultimately whose liberation should be focused on. And, you know, this could be an area in which Nash may somewhat disagree with me and say something like, well, you know, we do have to consider how people move about this positionality <clears throat> and what they do with other veins of power that they may tap into. And I totally agree, you know, just because I occupy certain marginalized identities is one thing. But I think an important thing, especially for us white folks and specifically to my fellow white queers, I think it's really important to dissect how your areas of marginalization affect you. But more than that, I really, really challenge you um, to question how you're leveraging the identities you fall into that provide you power and dominance. So how are you navigating this and what are you doing to disrupt and dismantle the power that you were born into that can harm other people? And this analysis is provided really heavily in a Kathy Cohen piece. I believe it's called um, Punks, Bulldaggers, and Welfare Queens. And she really goes in and discusses... Um, the radical potential of this like general queer uh, liberation movement but ultimately one of her biggest pieces of advice is to really analyze power structures and positionality um no matter what intersections you're looking at you know are people holding certain positions of power how are they wielding it um and really questioning that. So I kind of want to leave off with a really quick discussion of the Combahee River Collective, um, which is a collective that formed, I believe, in the 70s of black lesbians on the East Coast. And one of their main points is discussing how often the liberation of black women and black lesbians would necessitate the liberation of all. And so I think that you can kind of use that idea and sort of expand that and say, you know, okay, I have these areas of marginalization. Am I centering the most marginal? And is my work actually going to lead to true liberation? Because, you know, for me, if I were to have some sort of discussion or uh, hold some sort of power where I could you know, enact liberation and change, but only along the axes of the identities under which I fall, there is still going to be a plethora of people who are uh, left out of this, you know, idea of liberation. And so I think that's where I want to leave off and just really kind of get us all thinking about you know, what positions of power we hold and how are we wielding those and 
understanding that, yes, our marginalization and the intersections under which we fall are all valid and can really help you empathize and understand um, other compounding areas of marginalization. But doing something with the power that you hold um, ultimately is incredibly important in order for all of us to be free. So that concludes my section. Thank you all so much for listening. And now you're going to hear from Alexia. Hi, my name is Alexia, here with the unique podcast on today's episode of Intersectionality. And today I want to give you guys examples of how people are affected due to intersectionality. And first I'm going to explain a situation that occurred last fall of 2020 with one of my favorite music artists, Megan Thee Stallion. And then I will also be discussing inclusivity and what that means. And later I will be interviewing two of my friends, Kayla and Maria, And we're going to be discussing a part of their identity for you guys to gain perspective and to see how intersectionality comes into play with real people and real experiences. One of the reasons why I wanted to discuss intersectionality today is because of the layers of discrimination people face and why it is a problem. And this is a problem because of the violence people experience and the negative effects it can have on people's mental health. So an example of this is one of my favorite music artists, Megan Thee Stallion, was shot twice by one of her friends this last fall of 2020. For those of you who don't know Megan Thee Stallion, she is a beautiful, talented black woman who makes rap and hip hop music. So what had happened was Megan was with three other people in a car one night on her way home and there was an argument in the car. So since they were close to Megan's place, she decided that they needed to pull over and she was going to walk home to avoid this issue or argument. And as Megan was getting out of the car and walking away, a rap artist who was also in the car named Tori Lane shot her twice. Due to these gunshots, someone in the neighborhood called the police. Now, when the police arrived, they questioned Megan as she was bleeding from her gunshot wounds. And Megan describes this situation being scared for her life due to her injury. And because if she told the police that she was shot by Tory Lanes, she was even more scared about what the police would do because of the police brutality that happens towards black people and people of color. Megan ended up not telling the police that night that Tory Lanez had shot her to avoid more violence. After Megan was treated at the hospital, she tells the police that Tory Lanez had shot her and pressed charges against him. The police and the public were quick to not believe Megan's story, which is why Tory Lanez has still not been charged for shooting Megan. People were quick to assume Megan was lying. I think this situation really shows the lack of protection towards black women and how the legal system doesn't support black women due to their race and gender. And I think this is really harmful for black women because they shouldn't have to fear their safety. And when things like this happen, who is supposed to help you when the police are biased against black women? Fearing safety and having been affected by violence is really traumatic and has negative effects on black women's mental health. Now I would like to discuss what the word inclusivity means and why it's important and how to apply this, how to be more inclusive. And then I also wanted to discuss diversity in groups of people. Inclusivity is providing equal opportunities and equal resources to communities that need support. It is about creating and building a community for everyone. 
It is not about fitting everyone into one category to succeed, but rather to lift all other categories up for everyone to succeed. The purpose of inclusivity is to meet the needs of everyone, to create a sense of belonging for everyone and for people of all backgrounds to feel valued. Inclusivity is providing equal opportunities and equal resources to communities that need support. It is about creating and building a community for everyone. It is not about fitting everyone into one category to succeed, but rather to lift all other categories up for everyone to succeed. The purpose of inclusivity is to meet the needs of everyone to create a sense of belonging for everyone and for people of all backgrounds to feel valued. I wanted to give you guys some examples of how intersectionality and inclusivity kind of tie together. So inclusivity is giving everyone equal access to resources and opportunities, while intersectionality is the interplay of different parts of our identity. So through healthcare and hospitals and schools and jobs, these parts of our identity affect how well we do in these areas or how well we're taken care of in hospitals and what type of access we have to healthcare. And so I think it's important to recognize how these parts of our identities affect us through different areas of life. Inclusivity is not only something that needs to be policy in hospitals, jobs, and schools, but it is also a mindset, an attitude, and a belief. It's in the way we treat others and support other people. To be more inclusive, we have to recognize our own bias and think about our own parts of our identity, areas that we may privilege in and areas that we may be discriminated in. Another way to be more inclusive is to not judge people on parts of their identity. And it may sound easy, but I feel like society and maybe your parents or maybe people in your family have kind of taught you things and you may think or judge people subconsciously. So I just think it's important to remind ourselves to not judge other people on parts of their identity or what they look like. One thing that I wanted to discuss about how intersectionality and inclusivity tie together and is also something that I feel like isn't often talked about is diversity within groups. So what I mean by this is we need to be not only more inclusive of marginalized groups but also the diversity within those groups. So, for example, the LGBTQ community. We must be inclusive of all the letters, not just L, G, but BTQ plus as well. Another example of diversity within groups and inclusivity is being inclusive of all women, not just women who are white or lighter skinned and heterosexual, but women of color and black women and transgender women as well. I decided to interview my friends Kayla and Maria because Kayla is bisexual and Maria is Mexican. So I thought by asking them questions about that part of their identity that you guys could gain perspective on how those parts of their identity affect them and maybe learning something that you didn't know that people go through or that um, people feel. Today I wanted to interview one of my best friends, Kayla. We are going to be talking about her personal experiences being bisexual and the stereotypes society places on bisexuality. 
People are discriminated against in society for their sexuality if they are not heterosexual, which is a category that falls into intersectionality. Hi, Kayla. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks. So one of the first questions I have for you is how did you come out and was it difficult for you? So um, I came out to my mom basically by just telling her that I had a crush on a girl. Um, It was easy for me because my brother had already came out and um, so he kind of paved the way for me and my younger sibling um, to come out and know that we would be accepted and loved either way. Um, As far as coming out to other people, I don't really like broadcast that information. Um, If it comes out, it comes out. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Um, It doesn't really matter to me. So, I mean, heterosexual people don't have to come out so (laughs) I don't feel the need to. What are some stereotypes and stigmas towards bisexuality either that you've experienced or you've seen other people go through? I think a big stereotype for bisexual girls specifically is that they're more likely to dress kind of butch if that makes sense, like more masculine rather than feminine. And in some cases that's true, but obviously that's not true for everyone. Um, I tend to dress more masculine just because that's what is comfortable for me. Um, But I know people who will dress up too. And so it's not really like you can't look at someone and be like, oh, they're bisexual or whatever. Yeah, like know that they're bisexual. Yeah, just based off how they look. Yeah, I think that's really true. And I think another stereotype towards bisexuality is that you're confused and that you like one gender or the other, not both. Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some people who are bi-curious where they think that they might be interested in the in the same gender, but they're not quite sure yet, so they are still figuring things out. And, like, for me, at first I didn't realize it. Um, I had a crush on a girl, and I just kind of didn't really see it that way because I was older I was like 16 so I was like how am I just now figuring this out you know so I had to figure it out for myself a little bit too and so I think a lot of people go through that stage where they're figuring themselves out and eventually you get to the point where you have it mostly figured out yeah and I think that like with you saying that that brings topic of like sexuality being very fluid and like things can change you see a different person that you're attracted to that you're not usually attracted to have you faced any discrimination based on your sexuality i personally have not but i do have that fear of that happening like for example i I have wanted to go to like the pride parades and things like that in the past, but I'm just kind of scared because I hear about certain things happening um, around pride and like gay bars and things like that. And so it's just kind of scary and I feel like we shouldn't have to be scared of that. Yeah, for sure. Just like feeling vulnerable, feeling scared. I feel like sexuality is something that is very fluid and is something that can change, especially when you're still figuring things out for yourself. And especially because sex education is so focused on heterosexual sex and abstinence. Um, what do you think about this and how could schools do better? I feel like schools could do a better job of talking about other sexual orientations 
and ways to stay safe and create a safe and inclusive space where it's okay to ask questions and also to normalize other sexual orientations because when only heterosexual relationships are discussed, it leaves out a group of people which doesn't make them feel included and accepted. Hi, Maria. How are you doing today? Hi, Alexia. I'm doing good. How are you? Good. Thanks. Um, thanks for being on my podcast today. I appreciate it. It's, oh, yeah. Thank you. It's called the Unique Podcast. Mm. Anyways, I was wondering, um, what are some things that you like about Mexican culture and if you could just talk about like where you're from, where your family's from, maybe some history. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm from the Dallas, Oregon. I was born there and my parents are from Mexico and they're from Michoacan. Um, I feel like um, I love Mexican Christmas because, <laughs> <laughs> um, because of the food. It's really good food. And I like um, Dia de los Muertos and, like, that part of culture. Mm, I love that. Yeah, I think the holiday Dia de los Muertos is a really cool way to celebrate people's lives and a special way to remember people. I think the festival and the costumes and the whole idea is just really beautiful. I also feel like family is a really important part in Mexican culture and I think that ties into Dia de los Muertos because you're remembering your family, your ancestors, and looking at people's lives and their death in a different perspective is just a really unique part of the culture. What were you saying about (laughs) your mom? My mom when she... um sets up an altar on Dia de los Muertos. She's, like, remembering her dead family members, but also, like, celebrating their life, remembering all the good times. And, yeah, it's a beautiful holiday. That's cool. What does she put on the altar? She puts food, fruits, drinks, flowers. Um, What are those skulls called? Sugar skulls? Mm -hmm. Just decorates it. That's cool. Sometimes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And like are they, pictures of, um, yeah, of like um, her dead family members or uh-huh. like people that have blasts that are close to her. That's really cool. Could you talk about some of your personal experiences being a Mexican woman and a first generation student at the University of Oregon? Yes, I can. Um, before coming here, I lived in a really small town where. I would say most people were white, and moving to Eugene, I expected to see um, more diversity, and then freshman year, I was um, told that this was the most diverse class the University of Oregon has ever had, so I was excited, but I felt like I still didn't see much diversity, or like I didn't see very many people that looked like me still, and... Uh, I'm very proud to be a first-generation student, and um, I feel like my college experience might be a little different than everybody else's, but um very happy to be here. So you're majoring in Spanish, right? Yes, I am. That's awesome. So how do you feel like your Spanish classes have helped you learn more about yourself? Well, I've definitely learned a lot more Spanish. I'm usually only speaking Spanish to my parents. And so with these Spanish classes at the U of O, um, they've exposed me to like more literature. Um, Usually in school, we never look at Latino or Chicano literature. So it's nice to have some exposure to that and learn more about my community as well as myself. Yeah, I feel like my Spanish classes definitely helped me learn more about myself and my community as well. What did you learn? Um, I feel like I've had a weird relationship with Spanish and like I knew it when I was younger and then as I got older, I just stopped using it. So now I feel like my Spanish isn't good 
And so it's just kind of nice to see like other students that are kind of in that same place and like also want to learn Spanish even though they forgot it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And just feeling like that's okay and, mm-hmm. and like know. a lot of people are like right there with you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Maria and I both have worked in the cherry orchards in our hometown where many Mexican workers travel to help harvest the cherries. And in my experience, I felt like it was definitely difficult work and there were very long days. But there was something so beautiful about the Mexican culture in the orchards, the language, the music, and just all the hard work I saw people do to provide for their families. I also think working in the orchards improved my Spanish. And also my dad picked cherries when he was younger in the orchards, so I just felt like I kind of understood more of the work my dad did to provide for his family and Maria and I didn't really know each other during this time so Maria I thought it'd be interesting to ask you like how your experience was in the orchards with your Spanish speaking and anything else that you wanted to share today. I feel like my experience might be a little similar to yours. I feel like my Spanish also improved. Um, I think I said this before but I grew up only speaking Spanish to my parents so when I was able to work there I was like having different conversations in Spanish learning new words and like slang so that was very interesting. Yeah and I also feel like when you have worked in a place like the orchards seeing migrant workers and like knowing them talking to them every day you just get to know more of their story. And so when people place stereotypes on people who are Mexican, that they're criminals or that they're stealing people's jobs, it just feels so wrong because you've seen- Like how hard they work and like what they do. Like a lot of these migrant workers are like traveling, like leaving their homes for like long periods of time for work and these are the people that are like putting or like keeping the fruits and vegetables in the stores and like providing and so like when those like stereotypes are like placed on them like that and like you've seen how hard they work it's like you don't think that's right mm-hmm. yeah and it's really sad that that gets just labeled onto people mm-hmm. <laughs> To end this podcast, we would like to ask everyone who is listening to this podcast to be more open-minded towards people with a different sexuality, different skin tone, different race, different gender, because all of these things are a part of someone's identity that they don't choose. The discrimination towards anyone who doesn't fit in the box of being white, male, heterosexual, and Christian is to keep certain people in power and others oppressed.